Acts chapter 3, back in Acts this evening. If you have a Bible or a device with a Bible app on it, find your way over to Acts chapter 3. How do you help a person in need? That's an important question, not a simple question. The answer is going to change, of course, depending on the person and their need and the resources that you have available to potentially apply to the situation. Now, you may be surprised to know that, at least when it comes to dollars and cents, we are living in the most charitable era in American history. All right, that's one for the good guys. <laughs> in fact, in the four decades leading up to 2017, from 1977 to 2017, giving in America increased in terms of dollars every single year except for three years, 87, 08, and 09. One charitable organization says this on its website, philanthropy today is more organized, professional, and global than ever before. But while a lot of charity is going on, there's not only big discussion over what is the best way to accomplish it, there's also some talk of whether a lot of modern philanthropy, worldly philanthropy, really even works. In 2012, for example, Forbes published an article titled, Why Your Charitable Donations Probably Aren't Doing Much Good. Thanks, Forbes. <laughs> in 2010, a while back, but The Atlantic published a piece titled, Does Large-Scale Philanthropy Work? They wrote, Many experts have found that good intentions still produce unintended consequences. The best model doesn't seem to be 100% clear. One famous example, I'm going to cite them in a minute, is Tom's Shoes. Hey, you buy a pair of Tom's Shoes, they send a pair of Tom's Shoes to, uh, you know, someone in need in Africa. The problem is, one of the unintended consequences is the local shoemakers in those areas go out of business, and the people they employ no longer have jobs, so it's, it's a little bit of a problem. There are some people out in the world that feel the best form of charity is education, teach a man to fish, after all. Others feel that the system of microloans, that's the philanthropy of the future. Others say, hey, just pump more money into existing systems, into existing governments and programs, and that'll continue to raise millions of people out of poverty. Some feel that brand philanthropy, exemplified by Tom's, for example, that's a great way to go. Still others say that deregulation in developing nations is the key to helping people in need. And none of this is a criticism of charitable work at all. Many people are doing many things around the world to bring help and relief to those who are in desperate need. But we notice that there is wide variety and even disagreement about how best to do it. Within the church, we note that there's also disagreement, or at least a lot of discussion, on this same topic. How do you help the world that's in need? Of course, the church deals with an additional layer that organizations like the Gates Foundation or Tom Shoes don't consider at all, and that's the spiritual need of the individual. People aren't just cold and hungry out there in the world. They're cold and hungry and dead in trespasses and sins. And we know from the New Testament that Jesus has sent his body out into every corner of the earth to do what? That's the discussion. That's the question that Christians don't always agree on. Perhaps you've heard of the term missional when it comes to Christianity or the church. It's somewhat of a buzzword. 
If you're, you know, if you follow Christian bloggers or, you know, different Christian, you know, newsletters and those sorts of things, that word is going to pop up from time to time. There's lots of books that deal with it. A lot of discussion over this word. It's a word that's thrown around a lot, and really it's variously defined depending on who is using it. You can't just say, well, missional means this, because lots of different people use it in slightly different ways. One organization, a Christian organization, discusses the word this way. They say, since the early 1990s, a plethora of books and conferences have used the term missional. Not all of them reflect the same idea. Some participants often advocate a broader understanding of mission, one that lacks a clear emphasis on proclamation evangelism. In other words, there are some corners of the church that say, hey, to be missional, to carry out the church's mission, we don't really need to preach the gospel. What you need to do is go out and do works of tangible compassion. That's the idea in some corners of the missional movement. In an article in the Christian Post that I read today, it said, rather than being evangelical, perhaps we should consider returning to being missional in the manner of our first and second century brothers and sisters. Ah, there's that old attitude that we've been talking about since we started. That's why we call the series Those Were the Days, because there is kind of this idea that threads its way through Christianity where it says, well, if we could just get back to what they did, copy what they did in the first century or what we think they did or the parts of what they did that we like, then we would unlock the powerful potential of the church on the earth. Well, how did the first century Christians go about their mission? How did they show compassion to people? What did charity look like when they were doing it? We've already seen a little bit of the answer from their communal style there in the infancy of the church in Acts chapter 2. But tonight, we have an additional wonderful text that shows Peter and John encountering a beggar and ministering to him compassionately. And this is great because the basic situation, the template of what we're seeing here, is something that still happens to us all the time, even here in Hanford, right? If you go to Walmart, if you go to In-N-Out, and you're pulling out of that corner, who's going to be there on the corner? Someone not unlike who, the man we're going to read about today. Someone begging for alms, right? And so the structure of the situation is very similar to our real-life experience. So this is a great thing. All over Hanford, we encounter beggars, people in need. But on an even greater level, we see here in our text an example of spirit-filled people who are in tune with God, who are in communion with God. They're right on doing the right thing with the Lord. They're living out their Christianity, and they're being used by God to help someone. And so we want to take notice of what is preserved for us here in the text because we also want to know how to help people in this world, this world that is in such desperate need of help. So not only is this a wonderful ancient text, a wonderful history text, this is a kind of text that can meet us right where we're at as people who say, Lord, I want to serve you, I want to be used by you, I want to help people, and I look outside and I see that people need help. Great. This is a text for us then tonight. We begin in verse 1 and it says this, Now, Peter and John were going up together to the temple complex at the hour of prayer at three in the afternoon. Devout Jews observed three times of prayer each day. You know, we can't always be sure historically of what all occurred at these various meetings. 
And we don't, we don't, you know, it may not seem like it, but we don't want to rain on everybody's parade. But a lot of times we'll say, well, and here's, they did this and they did this and they did this. And the truth is, historians and archaeologists don't exactly know what happened at all of these various meetings. What we know is that this hour of prayer, 3 p.m., would have coincided with the Jewish evening sacrifice. Now, the apostles, they're not going for the sacrifice. They're going for the prayer. They're going for the gathering. We've been seeing in the text leading up to this, they're going to the temple every day. It's a big open space in the courts there where they can meet with people and speak with people and teach and pray and be with God's people. There are thousands of Christians at this point. They can't all meet in a house or in a room this size. Imagine if our church tonight had 3,000 people that wanted to come to church we'd have a real problem. We'd have to spill out into the courtyard. We'd have to spill out into the parking lot. So the temple was a natural place. But they're going there for the hour of prayer as well. We note first that Peter and John were headed up to the temple just as usual. It's like a casual thing. Yeah, we're going up to the temple. We'll see you guys in a little bit. And this tells us really quite a few things. First of all, even though these two men were the leaders of a group of thousands, they still lived just a normal life. You know, they didn't seclude themselves like you see celebrities doing so often today. They didn't have an entourage of handlers around them. We also see that their prominence and their importance in the church didn't keep them from the regular disciplines of Christian life. Even more so, it's going to be highlighted as we get later into the book and there's these other problems rising up and they say, hey, we're not going to leave the study of the word to do these other things. And so their place as apostles, their importance and their prominence, the fact that they were Peter and John didn't keep them from regular disciplines of the Christian life in their personal schedules. Think for a moment of how busy these two guys would have been. Really, try to think about that. I mean, the apostles were the guys who had walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus and lived with Jesus. Word would have spread these two guys in particular, they saw the transfiguration. Peter walked on the water. They had been sent out to go and they had cast out demons. They had been at the feeding of the 5,000. They had been at all these other things. They had seen the risen Christ and communed with him and all that kind of stuff, right? Now think for a moment that they would have been the source for their congregation about the teachings of Jesus, this huge congregation that they were responsible to shepherd, they didn't have the New Testament to read. They didn't have, you know, newspapers and archives of, to read. Well, here's what Jesus said, his sermons in a book over there. What did, Peter, what did Jesus told Peter to do there on that morning where he had breakfast with them after his resurrection? He says, hey, you, you need to feed my sheep. And I'm sure Peter was taking that very seriously. And now you had thousands of people who needed to learn about Jesus, and you had 11 guys who had been there with him from the beginning, or 12 guys, right? And they were the ones responsible to spread the teaching and to spread the word and to explain, you know, all that Jesus had said and, and all of this kind of stuff. There were spiritual needs. There were practical needs. There were incredible logistical problems to solve. But verse 1 shows that despite all of that, these two guys weren't too busy to just go and pray every day, probably three times a day. Hey, I'm going to the prayer meeting. A few hours later, hey, I'm going back to the prayer meeting. A few hours later, hey, I'm going to the prayer meeting. Didn't you do that yesterday like three times? Yeah, I'm doing it again today. That should just speak to us about the importance 
of prayer and making Christian disciplines in our lives a priority. Verse 1 also reveals that the very first ministry outreach of the church age that we have recorded for us was completely impromptu, completely unplanned. There was no plan to go out and do an outreach that day. Now, of course, a lot had been happening among God's people every day since the birth of the church. We know that. But this is the first story that Luke gives us of Christians going out and doing an outreach, right? In fact, we'll see it's literally an outreach as Peter reaches down and grabs his crippled man. Maybe that's where the term outreach came from. But Peter and John, they had made no plan to minister to anyone that day. They didn't look at the demographic data and say, you know, we don't have any cripples in the church right now. Let's go find one and get him into the church. They were just on their way to prayer. And God interrupted them with what we call a divine appointment, where they had a plan and God said, actually, I have a different plan. I have a different stop on your schedule, and you're going to find out about it when it happens. You ever have that, where you either didn't get a meeting written down, or somebody shows up and you're like, oh, i got to meet with this person, whether I wanted to or not? This was a divine appointment. God interrupted them with a great opportunity for his power to flow through them. Verse 2. And a man who was lame from birth was carried there and placed every day at the temple gate called Beautiful, so he could beg from those entering the temple complex. We'll learn in chapter 4 that this fellow was over 40 years old. He'd had quite a hard life. We're told that this particular spot was his regular place where he would beg. Every day he set up there. And it must have been quite some time that he had been setting up shop there because by the end of our text, we'll see the average person, just the average everybody in the temple recognized him. If you're a Hanford local you, and, you know, you probably recognize some of the homeless people in your neighborhood or in the area, right? Certain people that are there for long periods of time that traffic the same spots and those sorts of things. And so the average person in the temple, we're going to see lots of them are like, hey, that's that dude. And so clearly this guy had been there for a long time, every single day, we're told. Why is that important? Well, the implication here is in that almost assuredly, Jesus Christ himself had seen this man and walked by him at some point, maybe many times. I mean, Jesus knew him. You know, Jesus knew him from before the foundations of the earth, but yet for reasons that we're going to discover in a little bit here, we have to assume that Jesus walked by him. Or maybe we don't want to assume that. Okay, Peter and John for sure walked by him. They're on their regular route to get into the prayer meeting. And they had walked by him a bunch of times. Now, we can say this about the crippled man. He had some really compassionate friends. I mean, think about it. Maybe I'm way less charitable than you, but it's inconvenient to even give your friend a ride in your car, right? Uh, yeah, I can do that for you. Not really, but like, it's not like we, a lot of us say, I give a, a friend of mine a ride every day in my car, right? That, that would be kind of unusual in our culture. Now think about this. This guy had some friends who went and picked him up and physically carried him to wherever he had, from wherever he had slept to this gate every single day jostling through crowds, navigating up steps and stairs, the temple mount, right? You had to go up in order to get to the complex. You ever carried a grown person who couldn't help you while they were carrying? It's tough. 
My little boys who are nine and seven, I'm like, uh-oh, I don't know if I can pick you up anymore. You're like sleeping in the car. I'm like, just wake up, you know? <laughs> and these guys, that's amazing. It's a significant amount of charity each and every day. They say, yeah, let's, let's go get our friend. Let's go help him. But, you know, their compassion, though commendable, could not help him in any sort of lasting way. They could only bring him as far as the gate, and that was it. Of course, as a cripple, he was not allowed inside the temple. Nor could their daily compassion of carrying him do anything to solve his greater problems. The fact that he was crippled. The fact that he was uh, excluded from being part of the congregation of Israel, right? Instead, day after day, he would lay there, probably hearing the music from the temple, smelling the incense coming off the altar from inside the complex, And as people came by in and out, he begged for enough coin to just survive another day. Verse 3 says, when he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple complex, he asked for help. What it means is that he asked them for money. He was begging alms. And he definitely needed money. He would still need money, or at least provision, after his healing, by the way. We'll get to talking about that in a minute. But he had many other needs, for sure. He needed two working feet, for one thing. Without that, he was utterly hopeless in the era he found himself in and the culture he found himself in. No wheelchairs, no programs, no assistance, no anything like that. All he could do was beg. And the only hope for him to break out of the life of of begging and being stuck in that state was to have two working legs. He needed that very much. Even more than two working legs, he needed to be reconciled to God. You know, the fact that he was left on the doorstep of the temple day after day would have been a constant reminder to him of his separation. You know, under the Levitical system, he was not allowed to go in to offer sacrifices as a cripple. And you know, that's a real problem if you're a Jew. But you see, there was no glimmer of hope in his mind that anything could ever be done about his real problems. His real problem was his disability. His real problem was his separation from communion with the God of Israel. But there's no glimmer of hope. There's no idea that, hey, maybe one day this will get undone and I'll be able to rise up off of my sickbed. And so when these guys come by, he doesn't even ask for help on that level. He just says, hey, I need money. And you know, I was thinking as Christians, we're often able to more fully diagnose the needs of a person than they are themselves. This man, if you said, hey, what do you need? Because he was broken down and hopeless and because his situation seemed impossible, he would have said, I need money. And really what he needed was a relationship with the living God and two working feet and then material supplies so that he could survive, right? That's what he needed. But that was an impossibility for him. And so it's never just the physical need that is the problem in a person's life. There are spiritual and eternal issues at play. And as Christians, we know that. We're clued into that. Where God says, actually, what the world needs is the transformation of Jesus Christ is to be set free from the guilt of sin, is to be given everlasting life, is to be given the mind of Christ and all these other things. And people need, you know, material supplies so that they don't starve, those sorts of things. Now, verse four, Peter, along with John, looked at him intently and said, look at us. Peter will be the one speaking in this scene, but don't discount John's part in the ministry. They're unified and cooperating together as far as Luke is concerned. 
You know, I like what Peter says. He says, hey, look at us. It seems that the crippled man was just sort of generically holding out his hand and maybe, you know, or whatever he had. It's not really making eye contact. And Peter, you know, Peter wants to interact with him. He says, hey, look at me. Look at us. And so he gets his attention. But I think there's a good chance that Peter was also sort of saying, hey, look at us. Do we look like we have anything to give you? I mean, the only difference between you and me, buddy, is that I've got feet that work. You know, I don't have any money either. Their robes were undoubtedly faded and worn from the countless hours on the Sea of Galilee. These were poor fishermen. They didn't have anything. Their pockets didn't jingle when they walked by. Remember, when they were with Jesus, they didn't even have money to cover their tax bill at one point. You got a real problem. But purposefully getting the attention of a beggar, well, that's going to kindle their expectation, right? We know that. Verse 5, so he turned to them expecting to get something from them. Just as a quick devotional question that we can each pose to ourselves tonight, when someone looks at you, what can they expect to receive? You know, of course, it's never fair to judge a book by its cover, and we know that God doesn't look on the outward, he looks on the heart. We understand all of that. But at the same time, my countenance, your countenance, our behavior, our demeanor, they are broadcasting things to the world at large. You can be walking down the street and see someone else walking towards you and make all sorts of assumptions and judgments based upon the way they carry themselves, right? And maybe some of those assumptions are not quite right, but a lot of times they are, right? A lot of times you can tell if a person is interested in talking to you, if a person might return a friendly wave or not. If a person is the kind of person that, mm, maybe I don't want to make eye contact with that person and I'll just keep moving a little bit quicker, right? Because the way that we carry ourselves, our countenance and our demeanor broadcast thing to the world. Now, one admirable characteristic of the Christians in the book of Acts is just how they were winsome. They were welcoming. They were attractive to people, not in the sense that our culture talks about it, but people would look at them and there was something different. There was something wonderful. There was something that made people gather around and say, hey, what is going on here? They were gracious people. And so remember, the Bible says they will know we are Christians, not by our grumpiness, not by our you know, gritted teeth. They'll know we are Christians by our love. And so our countenance should be Christ-like out there. Verse 6, but Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, get up and walk. Now, we saw in earlier passages how the first Christians were living with all things in common. And some groups make a big deal about this. Oh, we should all live communally and, and set up in what looks more like a communistic system rather than what we see here. But what do we see here? It clearly wasn't some form of communism the way we think of it. Peter still had no money to give to the man. There wasn't like everybody showed up to the communal house, dumped their money in, and then on your way out, you just took a big thing. There's my coins for today. I got my allowance. Right? What we saw in Acts chapter 2 is that as people had needs, the other Christians around them said, hey, I'm not going to count anything as my own. I'm just going to use what I have to minister to you and, and to address your needs. Right? And so we see here, Peter still didn't have any money. Now, notice what he says. He doesn't say, you don't need silver and gold, buddy. He doesn't say that at all. He says, in essence, yeah, man, I know you need money. I just can't help you with that right now. And we don't get the rest of this man's story, but let's just think about this logically. After he's healed, right, 
he immediately goes with Peter and John, and he's going to stand with them at a trial that's coming up. And so he's going to be brought into the church, into the congregation. And there they, of course, were going to help him with things like food and money and supplies, just like they had been helping all of the other people who were in need of those things. This man would need a lot of help. He had lived his entire life as a crippled beggar. He had nothing. He had no skills. He had no job to fall back on. He had no network that could help him. The church became his network. And so they'd be helping him a lot with silver and gold after this story, right? He would need a lot of help that would require the generosity of other more fortunate believers. And that would come later, but it still would have to come. Now, I'd also have us note that Peter said, what I have, I'll give you. Not sell you, but give you. Ministry wasn't withheld from the man until he became a member or signed some kind of pledge. He didn't have to buy a book or supply a mailing address. It was just a free gift. He says, hey, you're a stranger. I don't know who you are. I've walked by you a bunch of times, but I'm going to give you what I've got. Now, at this point, though, God had a much greater plan for this man than simply a few coins for one more meal. This Holy Spirit somehow clued Peter in on what should be done. Now, we're not given the internal conversation that Peter had with the Lord, and I think he must have had one. He must have. Uh, There must have been something. Because on the one hand, Peter in the Gospels was sometimes impulsive. Of course, we see that in the Gospels, but it often wasn't in super positive ways. On the other hand, we're going to see later in Acts, Peter kind of slow to take up an opportunity that God presents before him. And so we don't know what transpired that afternoon between the disciple and his Lord. Certainly it was something. And it's okay that we don't know because it's not meant to be a formula. Pray the prayer of Peter and you'll become a healing person. And sadly, that's what people would think. Well, if we do the Peter prayer, I'll be able to heal crippled people or I'll know when God wants me to minister to someone. In reality, this is just an example of how God can and does invade your regular activities and minister through you according to His will, right? If we are seeking after Him as we're commanded to, and if we're intent on discovering the good works He has established beforehand for us to walk in, then we are going to find ourselves in these sort of divine appointments and we'll be able to walk in faith when they present themselves, Peter had for sure passed this man many, many times, even just the day before, maybe even just the morning before. He was laid there every day. This is the, the, the third prayer meeting. Peter probably passed this guy twice already today. But today, at that moment, that was the day that God was going to do something different. And luckily and wonderfully, Peter was ready to listen for that leading and to be obedient when God did direct him. Verse 7. In taking him by the right hand, he raised him up, and at once his feet and ankles became strong. God did something impossible that day. Let's never tire of reminding ourselves that, and each other that God does impossible things. Our God does impossible things. He can heal the sick. He can end wars. He can repair relationships. He can rescue prodigals. He's still the God of miracles. God's not any different today than he was in Peter's day. Now, in this instant, Peter clearly, firmly believed in what was going to happen. You have to have clear confidence to do what he did. Can you imagine if he would have picked him up and when he let go, the guy just 
fell down, smashing his feet anymore. Peter is no dummy. He had a clear confidence. Clearly, the Lord had been speaking to him. Clearly, the Lord had filled his heart full of faith, and he knew what was going to happen in this instant. Now, this isn't always how things go when we walk with God. When you read the biographies of some of the great heroes of Christian history, people like George Mueller, Gladys Aylward, these kinds of people, there were times when they had a clear, confident understanding of this is what God is going to do in this situation of need, and they're so confident of it, and they're so sure of it, and they move forward walking in dramatic faith. And then as you read those biographies or you read their letters and those sorts of things, there's lots of times where they admit they have no idea how God is going to act to help them or even whether he's going to help him in a certain situation. They're like, we don't know. I don't know how we're going to get this money. I don't know how the Lord's going to provide. I don't know if God even wants us to do that. And so it's not that Peter always was able to perfectly know the will of God in every situation, but in this situation, it's clear that God filled his heart with a faith that was full of confidence. And so our expectation is that God will indeed lead us, and we want to develop more and more sensitivity to his leading. Because God leads last minute sometimes. Sometimes God leads last minute of that guy you're walking by right now. Because that's the impression we get here. Because it seems that Peter had walked by this guy two other times today. But this time was the time that God wanted to work. Verse 8, and so he jumped up and stood and started to walk. And he entered the temple complex with them walking, leaping, and praising God. The man had a complete transformation, and with that transformation came sudden access like he'd never known. He was immediately able to go into the temple. He was immediately part of the proclamation of the gospel. He was immediately invited to be a part of the congregation. In fact, Peter and John, for their part, seemed to have said, hey, you can walk now. Wonderful. We're late for the prayer meeting. Why don't you come with us? That's what it seems like it happens. Peter didn't start saying, I've healed a man. Come to me. I've healed a man. No, this remarkable thing happened, and Peter says, yeah, we're headed this way. You want to come with us? Why don't you come along? We'll introduce you to some other Christians. We'll tell you about who Jesus is. Verse 9, all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they realized, and they recognized, rather, that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple complex. And so they were filled with awe and astonishment at what had happened to him. It would have been mind-blowing for this to happen. But for a Jew, there was even greater significance to what they were seeing because everybody in the temple there knew that Isaiah had prophesied that the leaping of a lame man was a sign of the Messiah and the coming kingdom. And this was no illusion. This was no trick or manipulation. They all recognized the man. They said, dude, that's, that's the guy who's been there for like the past 40 years at the temple that we've been walking by. And here he was completely disrupting their prayer service with his loud leaping and praising. He's making a commotion while people are trying to pray. This is such a big deal that we're going to see everyone is going to stop what they're doing and rush to Peter and ultimately thousands more are going to put their faith in Jesus Christ. For now, we turn our thought to the opening question of compassion. How do we help people as the church and as individual Christians? Yes, this situation is a sample of the signs and wonders that we were told about in chapter 2, verse 43. We have to take, you know, we take a, at least a week-long break between our studies, but if you're just reading through the book of Acts, Luke says, hey, they're doing a bunch of signs and wonders through the apostles. And here's an example of one. But not only is this a sample of those signs and wonders that the apostles were working, it's also a demonstration of Christians doing ministry, right? We see God's people reaching out with compassion to a man in need, 
and having great spiritual results. And how best to reach out to people with the mission of Jesus Christ is a topic of debate within the church. So what can we say about what we see here? First and foremost, and most significantly, it's a work led, empowered, and timed by the Spirit. Peter and John made no plan to do this that day. That doesn't mean we shouldn't plan ministry. Of course we should plan ministry and be thoughtful. But a lot of ministry gets planned and attempted when the Spirit hasn't led it at all. At all. Peter didn't get to say, Lord, I've decided I want to heal this guy at this time on this day. So chop, chop. Right? This is the, the Holy Spirit's doing. Christians and churches all the time are doing things that seem like a good idea, but this man's story challenges us to really wait for the Spirit's leading. What does the Holy Spirit want us to be doing? What does He want you to be doing today? What does He want our church to be doing? We can plan and we can ask Him and we can look for you know, different things to do, but we have to be able to say, the Holy Spirit said so. He said so. He told us to do this. And He's led us in some way. I mean, Jesus didn't heal this man. Peter didn't heal this man just the day before or the morning of. And think about this. Warren Wearsby points out there are probably tons of other cripples in that exact area, right? Remember when Jesus heals a man there at the pool? There's all kinds of crippled people there. And the Lord had an interaction with one of them. The same scene is going to be playing out here. Why not any of the other sick people? Why this guy on this day at this time? Well, that's the Lord's business. Maybe it was because the Lord knew that in that moment it would lead to the conversion of thousands of people. We don't know. What we know is that the Lord is the head. He's the decider. We are supposed to be the body being directed, not doing what seems good to us. I want my body to follow the instructions of my brain. When my body stops following the instructions of the brain, we've got a real problem. We start seeing doctors. We start running tests. We start doing all kinds of things. And in the spiritual realm, it's way too easy for us as Christians and as churches to say, well, we think this seems like a good idea. God, I hope you show up too. And we want the Holy Spirit to be leading. What does the Spirit want? Another thing here is as we think about this ministry of compassion, Peter and John picked up where the man's friends had to leave off. They took him as far as they could to the gate. But the ministry of Jesus Christ could bring him through the gate. And the symbol symbolism is simple. Ministers of the gospel are able to address the spiritual and eternal problems that non-Christian charity can never hope to solve. And this is why it's so important that we not just jettison the idea of preaching or evangelism or conversion when it comes to ministry. We can do practical compassion and we're commanded to. James and John both said like, Hey, if you're saying you're doing ministry and you say, yeah, be warmed and filled, or you, if you see somebody in need and you don't do anything to a brother in need and you don't do anything to help them, how can you say the love of God is in you? So we're not saying you get rid of practical compassion, but you can't get rid of evangelism and the idea of conversion and the idea of preaching. We'll see that the Christians in Acts do a lot of practical compassion, but the priority and the focus is always the eternal need. That's the bigger need. That's the more significant need. And you know, we alone have the power that can bring people through the gate into the presence of God. We alone have the power that can transform people's lives and their eternities. It's the power of Jesus Christ. And so when Christians say things like, let's stop being so preachy and just focus on practical compassion, 
That's like an Ebola doctor with an Ebola virus vaccination talking to Ebola patients and say, we really need to get your teeth cleaned. If you don't get your teeth cleaned, well, you're going you're to have some real problems later on. Let's get your teeth cleaned. And we would be like, take that person's medical license away. Let's find somebody who will administer a vaccination to these people. That's what they really need. And so the church needs to not just become like the friends that carried the cripple to the gate. They did something really commendable, really practical, really helpful on one level, but practical compassion can only go so far, and then it hits the wall of reality, and then we say, okay, but what about the eternal? What about the spiritual? What about the bigger problems that seem impossible? Well, we know that nothing's impossible for our God. On the flip side, the Christians in Acts didn't ignore physical needs. This man was now part of the community and that was providing for one another all things in common. Once this whole situation played out, he'd be brought into one of those Christian houses where they'd give him a meal, probably new clothes, who knows what else. Peter sums up the Christian attitude of compassion when he says this, what I have, I give you, right? You and I may not have the power in a given situation to heal someone. Probably the Lord's not going to do that through us all the time. That has to come directly from God. And maybe he'll use us in that way at some point. Maybe he won't. But in the meantime, as we live out our regular lives, we expect the Lord to bring us into the path of needy people in this world. And when we get an opportunity to show compassion, our attitude should be, what I have, I give you. Because we do have resources, we do have a message, we do have a community, we do have answers. We have lots of things to give. What to give, how to give, who to give it to, and when to do it, well, that has to be directed by God the Holy Spirit. And so we trust Him to lead, we choose to obey, and our wonderful God will do what He loves to do, which is glorify Himself, transform lives, accomplish more than we could ever ask or imagine as He includes us in His impossible work. Amen?